have time for questions at the end. Thank you very much for the invitation. And I'm really pleased to be here because I have some friends as well and colleagues, and it's very nice to see them. And, uh, you know, everybody has really taken very good care of me. So um, thank you very much. Now, um, what I would like to talk about is, um, as you've heard, and if you look at our website and so on, we've been doing quite a number of uh, projects and we've got a diverse portfolio, as is the sort of term these days. Um, but I have chosen to talk today about complex intervention. In fact, when um, uh, Dr. McMahon kind of invited me here, she said, you know, that that's kind of um, something that you would like perhaps to hear a bit more about. Um, and also because in um, recent years, um, we have been um, carrying um, those um, interventions uh, within our um, population in England. Um, and I, was, um, I, I hope that from what you're going to hear, you might be enthused, interested, and so on. And we had actually quite a lovely discussion yesterday um, with um, uh, Suzanne about um, interventions and how you do them and where you start from and so on. And, um, you know, there will be some references sort of made um, in, the, um, in the course of this lecture. Okay, so what we are going to discuss um, is the landscape in mental health intellectual disabilities, which is my uh, main uh, domain and um, topic on which um, I, I work. Um, and I should say that I'm a psychiatrist by background. We're going to talk about the role of complex interventions, which although in other fields of uh, medicine is, uh, and mental health in particular is quite well known, not so much in uh, intellectual disability. Um, I'm going to use a disability or pilot study that we've done and which uh, Philip um, has heard a little bit about but this is going to be the sort of uh, fuller picture, really. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what I think might be some uh, steps that we can take for the uh, future. Now, um, you heard about my sort of university um, part of the job, as it were, which is University College London. But um, I also work uh, as a consultant psychiatrist in the Camden Learning Disability Service. And these are the sort of um, uh, aspects of the service. So we've got a community virtual team. Um, we work with the full range of intellectual disabilities from mild to severe. Bear in mind that Camden is inner London, so we see a lot of migrant populations. Uh, we see quite a lot of uh, health and uh, income inequalities. Um, and, um, you know, there is sort of poverty and so on. Apparently 50% of our patients uh, or the people who are registered for, uh, in our service uh, live in the most uh, deprived parts of the borough. Um, we offer uh, specialist health care, we do care management, we are in an integrated service, which means basically that um, social services and ourselves are collocated and the lead organization is social services and the health team um, is uh, providing the support uh, via some uh, service level agreement with the Camden and Islington Foundation Trust. Um, I have to say, um, we try to be proactive, but probably in the majority of time we're rather reactive. We try to do prevention, early intervention, and we actually liaise with uh, inpatient, outpatient services across mental health. We're using, in fact, quite a number of 
specialist mental health services such as early intervention, assertive outreach, uh, day services, for example, occasionally IAPT. Um, do you know what IAPT is? It's a sort of English way of saying psychological therapies, basically, and it's improving access. So there is a, one of the streams in mental health is uh, the kind of non-psychotic lines, which include um, psychological therapy. So this is our inpatient service, which is in a, uh, we've got four beds, which are part of a 12-bedded uh, unit um, within the uh, St. Pancras uh, Hospital, the Hampley Center. So there are four wards, all from adult mental health, and they've got some beds for us. Um, and um, this is a leaflet about explaining. We do quite a lot of accessible information and so on. And this is our sort of umbrella. We're protecting our um, service users. Now, why do I want to talk about, or why have we been actually um, doing um, complex interventions? Why the interest? And I have to say that um, there is a sort of personal issue to it because um, well, actually, uh, or sort of around the time that um, I was uh, doing my um, uh, training in the psychiatric intellectual disability um, as an um, SPR, as we were at the time, um, I was a researcher on the UK 700 study of intensive case management. And again, I don't know how many of the audience might be aware of this, but it was one of the biggest uh, studies in adult mental health about uh, intensive support for people with psychotic disorders or severe mental illness, in fact. And um, I did a, ana a secondary analysis of a number of people that we identified um, as having borderline intellectual functioning. So if you think about uh, intellectual um, ability, a mean of 100 and a standard deviation of 15, the people who were in this group were those between uh, one and two standard deviations, so the 70 to 85. Now, these people used to be actually called intellectually disabled in the past, but since the 80s, that changed, and they were declassified, as was the American sort of term. However, if you go into the DSM-4, that is still there, although I'm not sure what's going to happen with uh, DSM-5. So that was one uh, kind of uh, driver for me to say, well, if this is working, in fact, that was the only positive result of that trial. Because uh, the main trial showed that in case ma intensive case management doesn't really make a difference in, in patient outcomes. Or in fact, their main outcome, which was a number of bad days. But it did make a difference for those individuals with borderline intellectual functioning. So clearly there was something sort of happening there that there was a population emerging that might need more support. And then, with another colleague, Ian Hall, we did a Cochrane review of psychosocial interventions for aggression. And again, we were trying desperately to do a meta-analysis, but the only thing we could find were four studies, actually five when we revised the review in uh, 2009, and from those studies, um, actually, if we were to be completely, completely rigorous in our approach and so on, and of course, you know, the, the, you know I'm not trying to sort of say anything um, bad, but, you know, the studies actually have a number of limitations, although we've included them. And um, 
we definitely uh, think, you know, we saw at the time that we couldn't really say anything um, specific about what works and what doesn't work. And in fact, challenging behavior is a big problem for us in the services, and I'm sure that my Irish colleagues will uh, say the same. So basically, that's what led me to the evidence-based practice and the interest in um, uh, carrying this forward. So why complex interventions, which in some quarters could be almost equivalent to psychosocial interventions, okay? So I'm here from a very specific sort of point of view as well. <coughs> I'm not going to, to talk about drug trials, for example. So, um, well, one of the things is that people want enhanced quality of life and well-being, and that's something that we all have a right to. Um, especially, obviously, if they uh, don't have very good sort of mental health. Um, also, they would like the least restrictive interventions. And if you have a choice, you prefer psychological over pharmacological treatments. And that's not just for the service users. In fact, here I haven't put another paper that was presented, um, it was published in the British Journal of Psychiatry, which actually says the psychiatrists would like least restrictive intervention. So if you gave them medication versus something else, they would like a talking therapy. Um, they want a positive experience of care and being cared for in a safe environment. And we have to kind of show what really works in order to bring those domains together. However, um, there are a number of challenges. And in fact, um, the challenges that I have here have been um, presented um, in a number of um, other patient groups who have the same sort of uh, problems. So for example, in dementia care, for instance, where there is actually quite a lot of impetus at the moment to develop um, evidence-based psychological interventions because of course there are so many problems if you give people antipsychotic medication. So um, one of the biggest problems is the lack of manualized treatments. So you don't know who's doing what. Um, and there is also quite um, something that's um, a skill drift. So you go to a course, you learn something, you hear something nice, and you think, okay, I might apply it. And then after a month, you've forgotten all about it or kind of take shortcuts. The intervention may be poorly replicated. So because it's reported in one particular way, you try to do the same, you haven't got any other in information about it. How are you going to be doing it? Difficulty in accessing training. Now, um, a case in point is that we've got a manual, and I'll show you in a minute, but um, you know, now I've, this, this was something that we did two years ago, and I'm doing something else, and um, am I still interested? Would I be doing something else about it? Um, you know, so uh, researchers kind of tend to move on, and if these manuals, et cetera, are not being taken up to be published, and promoted and put together with a training pack and so on, nothing is going to happen. Um, there is no information on implementation. Implementation, implementation, and implementation. That's really very important because what happens in London, and we've had some discussion with Doran earlier today, might not happen actually in the north of England or in the east or west or in Scotland and so on and so forth. And there is no link most times with policy. Policy operates in its own sweet way and um, irrespective of what the evidence might be and so on. So these are actually common problems, but I think we've got them in a more severe form in intellectual disabilities. Now, 
how did the um, old age psychiatrist decided to go about it? Well, um, Moniz Cook, who is actually a professor in psychology in uh, the University of Halle, I believe, and colleagues, one of them being Martin Orell, who is a professor in old age psychiatry at UCL in, my in our unit, um, did interdem, which is interventions in dementia. So they created the European network of researchers, so you might say that this is actually already giving you bits of the future. Um, they've got a mission to promote high quality research. Um, they want to develop a critical mass of expertise. Um, you see here what they are aiming to do. So for example, um, who would give, for instance, reminiscence therapy? Who would say, you know, we must have reminiscence therapy for dementia? Would you suggest it? Or would you prefer cognitive stimulation therapy? The reason I'm posing this question actually is because a, a new study by this team actually showed that um, reminiscence therapy possibly doesn't really work um, as they would have liked it to work, doesn't improve um, any um, sort of um, cognitive domain. And not only that, but if you actually do a diet, a patient, carer, or spouse intervent, uh, rather the intervention applied to um, a caring diet, then the carers become quite depressed. So, you know, there are kind of problems with it. But actually, cognitive stimulation therapy seems to have better outcomes and is part of the, nice, the National Institute of uh, Clinical Excellence. So you see how sort of things develop and how evidence sort of change. And obviously there, are the, the, there is a need for intervention for longer term care, what happens in care homes, for example. And the big question, what are the active ingredients of the interventions? Now, just to move on to intellectual disabilities. Um, First of all, it affects about 10,000 individuals and there's been a new paper which sets it to about 1% generally, no matter which country you come from. Potentially there may be higher uh, prevalence in uh, um, developing or very poor countries, um, but um, kind of overall is about uh, that. Now in England, um, and that's because we've got the observatory, so we have um, for learning disabilities, so that's why we've got quite a, a sort of you know, new data to talk about. Um, we've got about um, 300,000 children and young people with intellectual disability and about 900,000 adults with intellectual disability. But look at this. 21% of this population is actually known to our services. So potentially saying Camden, it's not just 600 that I've got registered, but a lot more um, than this. And this is really important. This is the context in which we're talking. And actually, if we feel rather optimistic at the moment, at least in England, or the UK, I should say, is because this has been one of the better campaigns that Mencup has um, carried out, and it's been fairly successful in creating interest, as well, of course, not just Mencap, but I don't know, how many of you have heard about Winterborn? Okay, <laughs> so Winterborn and Mencap kind of managed potentially to turn the tide a little bit in, um, you know, the sort of interest by the government and um, other 
funding bodies um, for intellectual disability. So increased health problems is a really big, big issue. And um, we have a grant to sort of look at uh, that. And then the limitations and barriers in terms of how people with intellectual disabilities, and I'm sure you find it in other populations, particularly those with severe mental illness or those with, yeah, from uh, very um, low socio-demographic backgrounds and so on, um, about the health-seeking behavior, the attitudes by health staff, communication issues. Um, you can't articulate what the problem is. And this is a big term for us, reasonable adjustments. Now we're looking at ways in which we can measure how services do reasonable adjustments. Double time for GP appointments being a sort of very um, kind of uh, plain way of uh, describing it. Um, and also because I presume that the audience is not au fait, you know, or very familiar with necessarily the mental health issues in intellectual disabilities, I'm not saying that necessarily there is more mental disorders, although some colleagues might argue um, uh, for that, uh, but definitely there is at least as high um, a rate uh, or all disorders have been shown to uh, present in a person with intellectual disability. But I think um, the uh, most important thing here is actually this one, which seems to be the best um, example of a group of disorders that appear to be actually three to five times depending on which registers and populations etc you're looking at but that's perhaps the one that we've got sort of best evidence for and of course this new thing about the suicidal acts and ideation and so on they're actually very important they're part of the profile we don't even ask or you know they're um, high uh, service uh, users, they go to casualty all the time, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the picture where we are at the moment. Um, now this is some of our work which kind of, um, in a sense, uh, confirms, I guess, some of those things. And this is in a more, um, using secondary analysis, using epidemiological data, basically, to uh, think about um, particular populations. Now, there are different ways in which you can carve data and analyze and so on. But we looked again at um, the uh, adult psychiatric, these are the adult psychiatric morbidity surveys that have been carried out in England um, since the 90s. And there is one that potentially is going to go on next year. Um, so these are some of the things that we have found. So look at this, alcohol dependence which is actually quite important. We are seeing new populations and new problems that, because obviously people live in the communities now. Um, this is actually quite interesting about the uh, non-fatal self-harm. Certainly people do have suicidal ideation and potentially um, you know, they will do things to harm themselves, take medications and so on, even though completed suicide is obviously not um, very prevalent. And they're less happy than the rest of the population. This is sort of our um, kind of press uh, news creating sort of paper. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about money. And this is where we haven't got very good evidence, but that's um, you know, what we have at the moment. So first of all, um, we recognize there's a burden in tears and lifelong disability, which is actually a burden on the state. Now, what's the cost of illness, if that's how we're going to think about it? Well, this is European data. Um, I don't know how many of you might have seen this report here, which is the cost of 
um, uh, disease of the brain in Europe. And they've got some really lovely slides, and you can see where Ireland comes into that. Um, so um, I only use this to say that the average, okay, there are lots and lots of disorders in there, but intellectual disability, the first report came out in 2005, <coughs> didn't include mental retardation. The 2010 did. So they had, you know, and they've got even Romania and Bulgaria, uh, you know, uh, populations sort of included because obviously of the European Union um, status. Okay, so in the UK, for example, mean uh, cost of patient with these brain disorders, 2,500 euros. Intellectual disability, 10,000, almost five times more. And it was only second to psychosis. So um, then a much older study from uh, the Netherlands actually showed um, annual healthcare increase of um, 5% for people with intellectual disabilities. So it's actually a, a significant cost. And I was just saying that we talked with a colleague of mine, Dr. Stryden, who's been doing um, kind of cutting edge research at UCL. And um, in fact, if you think about learning disability, intellectual disability being 1%, that's equal to psychosis in some respects. And it's lifelong and you know, um, children, <coughs> adults, families, you know, it, it includes everyone. Um, now, something else again, which actually is relevant to uh, what we are talking about in terms of the interventions, you know, that uh, you've got different ways. Um, I was told that there is quite a lot of uh, contingent here in, you know, for health economists and so on, so I don't know how many of you, um, you know, have these particular skills. I'm not a health economist, of course. I only know things that are relevant to our studies, et cetera, and have this sort of rather basic understanding. But in fact, economics are very, very important. So anyway, these colleagues, Romy Molesanku um, and Romy, um, are people that I've worked with, they're health economists from the Institute of Psychiatry in, um, in London. And they did a review paper, uh, in, which was presenting current opinion in psychiatry, if you would like to um, find it. And um, they identified, between 2006 and 2010, identified 40 papers. But 30 of them were not relevant, and they had 10 citations. So they included 10 citations. You can see the, you know, most of uh, the studies were UK-based, and there was one that was kind of doing comparisons between services um, and uh, accommodations, etc., in uh, UK, Italy, and Germany. And the most, there are five ways in which health economists look at cost-benefits and so on. But actually, these were the only two things that were mentioned in, that, uh, in those papers, um, the only analysis sort of provided. And there were only two randomized controlled trials, actually, in that paper, I, you know, in those ten, within the ten. Uh, one is a drug trial, which is the famous or infamous, depending on which side you're coming from, Natchbit trial, which is a trial of risperidone, haloperidone, and placebo and actually said that placebo is better for challenging behavior. Um, anyway, there may be problems, but I think it is actually quite a groundbreaking study. And this is ours. That was um, our sort of first, I guess, psychosocial intervention. This is an applied behavior analysis. So we looked at applied behavior analysis. It's a pilot study by any standards. And um, we had a sort of economic 
component in that, economic evaluation. But what we found is that at the end of the trial, which was six months, and then doing a naturalistic follow-up for almost two years, it was cost-neutral, if nothing else, despite the fact that the, the uh, applied behavior analysis because it was provided, delivered by a specialist team, was actually expensive, something like 300,000 pounds a year to maintain the team. So even so, um, there was, um, you know, it, it didn't really um, affect, as it were, the budgets uh, very much. So they managed to keep these people well. And it's interesting that our outcomes actually were significant not just at the end of the trial, but also at the end, you know, post-randomization at the end of those two years. So, why we need evidence? Because it's important to know if what we do works, how much it costs, we minimize the confounding and other bias. It's the highest level of evidence, and if it's good for cancer, heart surgery, and so on, it should be good for our patients as well and for our practice. I don't know, do you agree? <laughs> now, complex interventions. Um, Suzanne knows all about it. She mentioned this particular paper yesterday. And I think this is the, you know, and again, I don't know how many of you may know of this. It's actually really um, quite a seminal paper. It sort of explains all the me Medical Research Council sort of um, complex interventions um, issue. And basically sort of means that you've got various components. It's very challenging to deliver it. Um, in pragmatic conditions and services. You've got lots of organizations, et cetera, especially if you've got multi-center trials. It's a nightmare, I can tell you. Um, you've got a number of um, outcomes and variability, and you, know, you may have also a degree of flexibility of how you might tailor the intervention. And these are the questions, really. Does it work in everyday practice? That's what we do when we appraise a paper. Is it important for us? Does it apply to our population? And how does it work? And the active ingredients, which we've already mentioned in a previous slide. And this is how it goes. This is the sort of cycle. You start from the feasibility and piloting. You go to the evaluation, uh, implementation, and then you've got the development. Um, I have, you know, at the moment, there is um, a funding stream uh, within the National Institute for Health Research that actually says we are going only to fund feasibility studies that are going to um, go on to become randomized controlled trials. Now, you know, there are, uh, there are actually quite a number of methodological papers and so on on this, and how do you go from a feasibility study to move on to a large trial, etc. All sorts of issues, but that shouldn't stop us, I guess. Um, now, just to remind you, um, because these, um, in fact, I'm having some emails uh, yesterday and today back and forth in terms of whether um, a student of mine is doing a, a, a sort of small study and we've been uh, um, kind of debating whether it was a feasibility or a pilot. And it's all been on the nuances and the sort of particular point. But anyway, so the feasibility, you, you know, you don't have, you don't estimate the sample size you really need to look at these things. You know, do people want to be randomized? Do clinicians want to actually refer people to the trial? Does anyone believe that this is a good thing um, for the patients? And then you obviously, you know, you're using some outcome measures. Do they work? Don't they work? You know, do you get lots of missing data? And so on. 
So, um, and this is, as you can see, you know, really probably very little to distinguish from a pilot study where you've got almost a smaller version and you can make it as an internal or external pilot so you keep or you don't the uh, people that you might have seen um, in, in that um, study. And sometimes you can actually have a qualitative aspect and say, you know, what did you think about the trial? Did, did it work? You know, did you like the treatment? Or why didn't you take part? You know, what is it that made you sort of not want to um, uh, participate? Um, and I would say as well that understanding the process is really very important um, because it gives us insight into why an intervention worked or failed. And this is actually, you know, um, would you stop providing reminiscence therapy because it failed? I mean, you know, what else is it that you need to know? You know, if people um, say, for example, even if it's non-specific, which is another thing these days, the sort of low intensity and so on, even if it's not specific, if it actually sort of makes probably some sense or whatever, or if you give more sessions of this, you know, and you might have a bit of outcome in terms of quality of life, would that not be uh, important? Or should it be, is this a good outcome? Or should you be looking for something else? Um, and there are different ways in which you can actually do this. And again, there is a huge methodology issue around this. Um, actually, UCL, you know, in our department, um, it, the trials are so important that they're trying to uh, recruit a professor in, tri in clinical trials. I didn't even know that there was a job description like that, but um, you know, just to show you, you know, where we are. Now, one of um, uh, my research assistants um, was doing a talk and put this um, for the uh, study um, on the um, applied behavior analysis, and he put it like this, which I thought was actually quite a good way of showing the sort of difficulties around randomized controlled trials, and particularly in the field of intellectual disability. And um, you can see why. Um, so here are the sort of, you know, the good things. So you start with an idea, it makes sense, you kind of, um, people want it, as it were. You start from equipoise, not like Suzanne was saying yesterday, uh, for, uh, you, you know, using another example locally, where you say, no, it works. <laughs> so you've got to make it sort of show. Um, <clears throat> now, you, you want to make it available, accessible. Um, you've put together an experienced team. You've got your data, and you're very energetic, and you go on, and, you know, you c compete for funding. You get it. Great. But then you've got some challenges. Recruitment, and I can tell you, this is not just for us, but for us even more so, because people immediately think, oh, is this a sort of guinea pig? If anything, I would say that perhaps uh, in intellectual disabilities, it might be easier to do a, a psychosocial intervention that's actually done a drug trial. Um, the Natchbit study that I showed you before was that it took five years of recruitment in order to get 70 people, and it went to Australia. Um, Ethics, there is a lot of question around, especially if you um, recruit uh, adults who lack capacity. And I can tell you, I've got, at the moment, you know, I'm in the throes of all sorts of arguments with um, our service and so on, because everyone interprets it in a different way. You've got multiple state stakeholders and gatekeeping. It's extraordinary. Of course, you've got the adverse events. I heard, actually, that the trial was stopped because there were lots of people in the intervention arm that went to hospital. 
So um, clinician engagement, very, very important. If they don't believe, they don't try, they don't get, you know, they're not engaged, it's not going to happen. And we've got quite a lot of um, services and stuff who are unfamiliar. We're here, we're discussing. I don't have to convince you necessarily that what I'm saying perhaps makes sense or it's good to try. But you go on the ground, you need to bring the services along with you so that they will want to do this. And they've got lots of other things. I mean, we were talking about the case, um, you know, where there's some evaluation to happen locally. And would the clinician do it if I have to do 10,000 other things? Probably not. So there are some papers there, um, and um, you know, who've discussed this. But I've got um, a um, positive uh, message here. As part of the applied behavior analysis trial, we did um, a, an evaluation, uh, actually it was a qualitative study afterwards. And it actually um, looks like, um, the randomized control trials, at least um, in that particular part of uh, the country, which was Essex, um, were seen in a positive light. That didn't stop people from wanting to take part in the trials. But of course, uh, one of the problems there was that the randomization wasn't a preference because people wanted to be in that particular, in the intervention arm. So, you know, we had to go um, against the grain, as it were. So, um, we needed to say, well, if it works, then yes, fine. But um, I think it's important that we've got um, some ongoing education about the design. And probably now in England, things are a bit better because there's a mental health network um, as part of the um, research network. So uh, that actually helps to get people sort of more accused and so on. And um, it's actually very important in terms of improving the acceptability. Um, and you can't sort of presume that you're going to go out. In fact, as part of the trial we're doing at the moment, I'm visiting every single site that's shown an interest. And, you know, we're doing all sorts of things to um, get people infused and um, uh, engaged. This is our why we do research. So we did something for our service, you know, locally. So we. Actually, this is in the uh, Royal College of Psychiatry's website, Philip, if you <laughs> would like to have a look. Um, so why do we do research? To get the service users interested and sort of understand a bit more because they've been helping us with various things um, in terms of training medical students and stuff like that. So this is kind of explains a little bit just to um, show how out of our way we're going for this. And um, we did an event based at UCL. We got some... Uh, beacon funding, which is about public engagement. So we had some people sort of coming in. These were the two service users who actually helped um, to um, talk about the event. Okay, so I'm going to go into this feasibility pilot study, which is um, cognitive, cognitive behavior therapy in people with mild to moderate intellectual disabilities. And there was a sort of interest um, in the department about this and um, for example, these two uh, colleagues here, Mark and Michael, are um, psychiatrists, uh, general adult psychiatrists. Uh, Mark is actually a CBT therapy trained. Andre is my colleague at UCL. Rene is the economist. Uh, Robert is statistician. Sue Martin is actually a speech and language therapist, and she helped to do all the accessible information and so on. Um, we've got the psychologist as well, and um, we had someone to write the uh, manual sort of professionally. 
when you could get money to do it? Um, <laughs> um, and it's funded by the National Institute for Health Research. And this is the website, which is actually still active, so if you'd like to have a look. Oops. Right, so our background, you know, when you think about the sort of feasibility issues and how you get the idea, etc. So, first of all, we did say that they're, you know, they've got, they can suffer from depression or anxiety. And there have been a couple of studies actually looking at, um, at birth cohorts that sort of seem to confirm that at least in people with mild intellectual disability, uh, mood disorders, common mood disorders, can be chronic and actually more um, prevalent than the rest of the population. Um, psychotherapy and intellectual disabilities, I don't know how many of you, again, are interested in this, etc. but a huge, you know, there is, in fact, quite a bit of literature around this. Some people say it's great, some people say not. But there is, I think, an element of therapeutic disdain, and probably there is a sort of, you know, preference for more behavioral sort of aspects of therapies. So, um, um, there is, however, increasing, um, you know, CBT these days is probably used for everything under the sun. Every condition could potentially respond to CBT. Um, so, has been tried, and there have been particular studies looking at the cognitive patterns of people with intellectual disabilities to see, in fact, whether they would, you know. So, for example, one aspect of psychodynamic psychotherapy that might be a barrier was that people uh, can't um, free associate, for instance. So, um, along those lines, they looked at sort of, you know, aspects of CBT, um, and they kind of confirmed with using particular experiments and so on that, yes, certain things happen, certain things don't. Um, which obviously are going to, provide, to prove difficult, perhaps, to deal with within a session. And so you have to adapt things accordingly. Um, and generalization is uh, one of the um, issues. And there is also sufficient literature, not despite all of this, actually, colleagues have gone on, done studies and published them, um, both um, individual and group, um, and um, as case uh, studies in most of uh, those occasions and publications and you know they reported success in treating as you can see quite a number of things even psychosis when in fact we're not even sure that CBT works in people with um, you know normal intelligence for, for instance so we've been actually sort of you know quite pioneer in that sense and then you've got the UK policy in practice and in fact I suppose I should say England here in terms of valuing people, which is our strategy for intellectual disability that says they have to have access to everything that's available for the rest of the population. And the National Institute for Clinical Excellence that suggests that CBT is actually a good treatment and you should try it before you prescribe medication. Or actually now, uh, apparently um, it makes sense to have it even if you take medication, if you've got a protracted sort of illness. So how did we model the intervention? Well, first of all, we had about 12 months in which to develop a manual. So we did the search, we did consultations, we went to the service users, we went to the um, um, uh, other colleagues and so on. And um, we put together the manual, which is for a, ther oops, um, for a therapist. I have to say that's really specific. So it's for people who are trained to provide CBT, so it's not someone that picks up the manual and says, okay, now I'm going to go and 
um, you know, do uh, deliver the treatment. We've got client worksheets and there is a carer's guide so that um, they can encourage the person to do homework and things like that. So this is um, a little bit about the manual. Um, you can see kind of some information here about the chapters that we had and so on. And um, this is actually, you know, the symbol that we use for the study is something the service users sort of said that that made sense for them. Uh, these are kind of, this is an example of two worksheets that are being used to sort of um, understand how, um, you know, kind of emotions can work if something happens, for example, and then what means to uh, the person, and then, um, you know, kind of a diary um, of um, a mood diary, rather. Um, and this is about the good times, etc. Apparently, this is one of the things that they've enjoyed most sort of doing. Um, and then we thought, okay, let's do a trial to see how it works in practice. Um, so we wanted to test the feasibility of the delivery of the intervention. Would we be able to recruit? Um, is um, treatment understood and accepted by cares and service users? And what's the adherence and treatment fidelity? So these are our inclusion criteria um, and um, our exclusion criteria. So obviously, again, there is a group of individuals that we wouldn't be um, you know, having well, we didn't think it was appropriate and um, to provide treatment for um, all sorts of issues, you know, we can discuss. Um, and comorbid conditions such as substance misuse in particular or autism. And of course, if already they were receiving some psychological treatment because, you know, we've got psychologists within our service and they may be providing, in fact, some form of CBT. Now, we had said actually in our uh, application 30 people, and um, we've got, we had 18 months for this phase of the trial, okay? So we randomly allocated them to treatment as usual, um, which was care ma management, medical, nursing, social support, whatever people were receiving from a variety of individuals. And then that plus the uh, CBT, which was actually 16 um, weekly um, sessions uh, which were carried out by two therapists that we recruited specifically to the study. And um, in fact, we had the service users with intellectual disabilities who uh, was part of the recruiting panel. And we used some of these materials to see how their aptitude for actually uh, working this, uh, with this population group. Now, the other thing that we had, which I think is actually really essential, is to have a support worker to help with the treatment. We've, it's really not possible to um, rely on staff who do hands-on work to do everything else, plus remind people, bring them to appointments and so on and so forth. Uh, and we've seen this actually anecdotally, just when our trainees decide to take on a case, and etc. and really, you know, you offer 10 sessions, you're lucky if they do five. Um, that's a good outcome. So these are the measures we use. We actually use the BPPS and the mini facade. Now, that told us if someone who was um, referred really had depression or anxiety or both perhaps. And the BPPS, because it gave us a, um, a sort of account of um, sort of mental age so that we can actually sort of, uh, then calibrate the uh, Beck anxiety inventory and the Beck depression inventory for youth. 
which we thought were sort of instruments that we used, um, and you might argue that it could be others, but anyway, this is what we used ourselves. And then we had the client satisfaction questionnaire, take some information about service use. Um, this one was a little bit of a disaster, and um, the, um, we did a baseline, and after they finished the treatment, and then we sort of did another third um, collection of data at about six months, and we did some qualitative interviews. So this is the sort of how people got into the study. So we saw 48 people in, in order to get our 32. So, and that took us about um, 13 months or so. Now, I have to say there is, ne you know, we don't really know, you know, should we have said six months and trying to sort of get everyone, but I'm not quite sure because at the moment we, we just don't have some sort of benchmark to say how long a recruitment phase should be and sort of based it on other work that uh, we've done. So 16 people were allocated in each group and you can see that it, at the end of treatment, we managed to get everyone in the intervention group. We had someone who dropped out from here. And then in the last two months, we lost two from here and we lost another two from the treatment as usual group. Now that uh, uh, is, um, you know, you can see here the reasons as well for why people should have dropped out. This is actually the, um, now, clearly we can't really talk about effectiveness per se, but this is the baseline. Now, um, it's, given that we're talking about pragmatic conditions and so on, um, now you can see that not everyone who was referred was actually seen by psychiatrists, because in fact, quite a number of people are seen by psychologists or are seen by their GPs before you know they get to us. And some of the people who actually were referred, yes, of course, they sort of fulfilled the you know, inclusion criteria and so on. But in fact, I, they're not my patients and they didn't become my patients at the end of the study. And of course, <laughs> quite a number of people were medications of variety. And you can see here as well that the additional health problems are in fact, you know, again, a kind of confirmation. Now, what do we find even on this sort of point? We did two, two things. One was to look at the groups as, um, intention to treat, okay, the 16-16. So basically, the one thing that becomes quite important is actually the, um, um, the Beck Depression Inventory Youth at the six months, which actually is lower for uh, people who receive the CBT than the people who uh, were in the um, treatment as usual group. So um, I have to say that our manual was what you might call transdiagnostic. It was for depression, anxiety. We didn't have something specific to go on, um, you know, from early research or whatever. And we had, you know, we kind of explained and argued for this approach. So within the manual, there are elements of uh, how you might address both depression and anxiety within the context of um, the session. Now, um, I have to say, um, we didn't see sort of huge reductions in terms of scores, but um, apart from this particular sort of um, group here, that the six months, so the end of treatment probably unsettled people a little bit, but 
two months on, those who received CBT seem to be a bit more able to cope and sort of manage their problem. Now then, um, we looked at the, um, at the costs, and, um, and again, uh, this is not an effectiveness study by any means, but um, we did two things. One is that somehow, at baseline, um, the people who were referred, who were allocated, rather, to the um, intervention sort of seemed to be more expensive in terms of the care they were receiving. And also that then you add the treatment and you've got an ever, but this is an indication at the moment that clearly there will be some costs or should we be maybe um, a sense of profile emerging? Should we be trying to get um, you know, particularly difficult people in there or maybe not so difficult or who you might have sort of a better outcome for. So this is actually something to be thinking about. And this is some feedback. So um, this is what they told us. I was really reluctant to go because I didn't find it very useful at all. It made it worse. So, um, and that was the sort of sense from the staff who were supporting this particular individual. Um, another good thing was like having the support worker as well. The support worker was very helpful actually. The communication was very good and the positive thing is that some of the things have worked. <laughs> good. And when someone finishes their CBT sessions, like after a month they should have a meeting about how the treatment went. Help in ways so that it could improve more things in life. So some people kind of, you know, would have liked, um, you know, sort of more therapy. Um, so, if we were to summarize, and if you remember what we wanted to test, so um, actually the treatment overall was acceptable and understood, and in fact, when um, you know, the research assistant was going around to um, do the interviews, they were able, they gave us examples of things that they had before, other interventions, etc., which were separate from this, there were different interventions, they could associate what they were doing um, in terms of remembering uh, aspects of previous treatments and so on, which was actually quite surprising. So um, the um, drop rate is about 15%. That's actually kind of, you know, um, not on the higher end of the dropout that you can have overall. Um, we found some reluctance of clinicians, and I would like to say that it was our psychology colleagues who really um, came down very hard on the study because we didn't include a third group, a befriender, for instance, when in fact there is some evidence to suggest that that doesn't, you know, it, it's not necessarily going to add anything. There is research sort of in the older population and so on, although arguably you might sort of have a different design, I guess, if we were to do this, you know, as a larger uh, trial. Um, in fact, people engaged they did sort of a mean of 12 studies, uh, 12 sessions. So, you know, that's actually quite surprising too. And the, the sessions were an hour. Um, now, in terms of the treatment fidelity, we did supervision, we did the uh, cognitive therapy uh, scale revised, audio tape sessions. There is someone who actually reviewed the sessions, regular supervision by Mark, um, who is the therapist consultant. In induction to manual as well as intellectual disability. So we tried to do as much as we could in order to keep people from the drift in skills, etc. And um, also we saw that those who were 
with depression and or minus anxiety, um, about 23 individuals in the intervention arm actually did a lot better. So uh, if that probably you know, says something about how we might um, you know, change the treatment in the larger study. And <laughs> because you know, we sort of um, want to carry on in this um, kind of line of uh, work, um, our portfolio has expanded a little bit. So um, this is our main thing at the moment. This is um, an HDA study about evaluating positive behavior support in a cluster randomized control trial in England. Um, Shape Up, which is ongoing, um, which is actually a pilot study of a program of uh, managing eating and physical activity uh, in people with mild intellectual disabilities. And then there is a new study that we are just going through ethics with, and all of this is sort of funded by, um, this is HDA, this is research for patient benefit, and this is research for patient benefit. So we're going to develop a public health-based intervention, which is an extended brief intervention for alcohol misusing people with um, intellectual disabilities. So, how can complex interventions work? Um, well, they could enhance utility of the treatment. Should we have a manual or not? Probably I'd go with, um, you know, with the manual. At least it tells you what it should be included and you can sort of train other individuals, especially if you're going for low intensity um, interventions. It does matter who delivers it, I think. Um, is it uh, value for money? And that's very important because now everybody's asking us to provide data. Probably we're under the radar for many years, but not anymore. Um, the studies obviously um, are dependent on the health provision. And I think we still need to understand a bit more about the duration, the rates, how to boost randomization within the context of all studies having some difficulty or other, you know, a lot. But we need to actually see what's happening within our field. And we're kind of getting data. I mean, drug trials probably are notoriously bad. Um, I'm part of a drug trial of statins in people with Down syndrome. And that is, at the moment, feasibility study in Scotland and they're struggling, they've got um, something like 10% recruitment rates, when actually they've got something like 400 people with Down syndrome from, say, or more, you know, with potential sort of, uh, to be recruited. And you have to look at your inclusion criteria, how stringent and so on and so forth. Um, fidelity, of course, is very important. What is standard care? And in all the studies that I've mentioned, you know, we, we have quite a lot of information about what standard care we will be making, um, you know, recordings and so on. The blinding and masking are important issues and of course the process evaluation. So, what else can we do? Well, I think now everyone is, we were talking about, um, what was it, the saliva example, you know, you do everything plus a saliva sample, so, you know, that can help you identify maybe particular um, or help to identify or have a clearer profile of who might be, um, you know, more um, susceptible to sort of uh, benefit from the treatment and so on. So you can build, you know, you can use other markers, biomarkers, to perhaps, um, you know, um, tell you a bit more about how your intervention might or might not work and, you know, um, improve. Um, 
Certainly we need more of these research networks and certainly the interdem paradigm, actually it's, I think it's great. We do need a critical mass of expertise. I'd like to say that in fact, uh, at the moment, uh, there are um, three trials. There is our trial, the positive behavior support. There is a trial of reduction of antipsychotic medication in primary care in Wales, led by Michael Kerr. And um, there is a study of um, behavior activation, which is just one component of CBT, which is the sort of flavor of the month that actually is being again in Scotland and Wales, um, which is led by Andrew Jahoda. So at least there are these, you know, and plus all this other work that we haven't dreamt of, you know, some years ago. So you can see how the field and, you know, let alone sort of other things that are happening within younger people and so on and so forth. So um, I'd like to show you something just so that you understand the kind of people that we saw in the study. And I think it's a good sort of way of um, rounding this uh, off. Just a few, um, I think it's a 